0: Join host Michael G. Cartwright for searching conversations with UND faculty and staff about our common future. On June 19, 1865, word reached the community in Texas that they were free. The following year, these former slaves gathered at the AME Church in Galveston to celebrate the good news of freedom. That occasion became known as Juneteenth. This past June nineteenth, the president... Cabinet, and Provost Council challenge the campus to live into a new sense of responsibility. Our campus will continue to explore all that this might yet mean, but already we know that it entails being honest with ourselves. On June 19, 2021, the University of Indianapolis will celebrate Juneteenth. In the meantime, each month our colleague Michael will talk with members of the UND community. Join us. Juneteenth Conversations. We look forward to sharing with you there.
1: Hello, I'm Michael Cartwright, host of Juneteenth Conversations at UND, and today I'm talking with my colleague, Stephanie Kelly, about growing up in Indiana with the haunting memories of racism and acts of racial injustice. Dr. Kelly is the Dean of the College of Health Sciences at UND, and is also a proud alumna of the university having earned her bachelor's degree and one of her graduate degrees here. Welcome, Stephanie. As I recall, you grew up in the little community of Swayze, Indiana, located a bit west of Marion and southwest of Fort Wayne and a bit south of the town of North Manchester. This past month, I had the opportunity to attend a lecture by Professor James Madison about his new book entitled The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland. In the discussion, one of the things that came up was the 1930 lynching that took place in Marion, not far from where you grew up. Professor Madison has been quite emphatic about disputing one of the myths of the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana. Unlike in the South where the KKK terrorized black people, There are no known cases where the KKK was involved in lynching in the state of Indiana. Madison says that it's especially important to understand events like the 1930 lynching. We can't act as if the people who lynched the two black men at Marion are monsters. They did not even have masks on. They were ordinary citizens. And the pictures from the event are of people who look like they're out for a picnic. They look like you and me, but as you and I have discussed on other occasions, Stephanie, no one seems to know who these people were, which of course is counterintuitive because we're talking about small towns in Northern Indiana like Swayze. So Stephanie, what are some of your own earliest memories regarding race and racism Particularly, I'm thinking about your childhood, your parents, grandparents, cousins, etc.
2: So well, thank you, Michael. I can't say that I have too many early memories of race and racism because my community was all white. My family was all white. Um, throughout elementary, middle school and high school, there was one student in our school system who was black. Everyone at my church was white. My parents really taught me that everyone was the same. Um, I laugh now be thinking about the phrase, do as I say, not as I do, because had I seen doing, I might have thought differently, but I only had what they said to go on. However, I will say while I don't remember real explicit conversations about racism, there was certainly a sense of otherness about race, a sense of less thanness. Um, it was known that the KKK had been active in the community. And I say no with quotes, um, referring back to your, your comment at the beginning. Um, it was known to me that it would not be acceptable to date a black person. I don't recall hearing a lot of explicitly racist language in my family, but you did hear it in the community, mostly through off-color jokes and that type of thing. But, but overall, it was just something that, for the most part, wasn't really talked about. But then in high school, I was in history class, and there was a picture in our textbook of the lynching that took place in Marion, and the teacher pointed that out. And it was, it was a very shocking and surprising realization for me to, to see that picture, which you're learning about it as such a horrible time, but then realize it happened right there in the community where you lived. I, I asked my parents about it, and that's when I first learned that my grandfather may have witnessed it that for me was really the first time I actually considered racism was something that um, really hit closer to home.
1: Stephanie, what kinds of encounters did you have from school, either positive or negative, that helped you to develop an awareness of the effects of racism as you grew into a teenager?
2: So I I grew up attending uh, Oak Hill schools um, just outside of Marion. And for me, race was really intertwined with athletics and, and school athletic rivalries. Um, If you know the movie Hoosiers, um, my childhood was several years after that, but in the movie Hoosiers, there's a real sense of community around men's basketball. And that was certainly my experience growing up. Everyone in the community went to the games. I could probably name the starting lineup of, you know, many years of basketball um, teams from my childhood. At that time, Indiana had single class basketball, And so every year, um, Oak Hill and the other small county schools who were all white played Marion in the sectionals. At that time, Marion um, was in the middle of their purple reign where they had won the state tournament several times. I don't recall any other team ever winning the sectional than Marion my entire time growing up. So, very much a David and Goliath situation. There was a lot of passion around um, supporting the the white county schools beating Marion. And I do recall a lot of racist chants and remarks that I always attributed to the school spirit and connected to athletics. But I do wonder now um, if, because that was one of the only times as a community we had significant interaction with people of color, if it was just a time when that racism was uncovered. I'm I'm horrified now to think of some Mm. of the chants and cheers and comments around athletics um, but again, for me, it was very, it was very intertwined. Other than those experiences, I would say racism for me really stayed below the surface. Um, and I was blissfully unaware. I think recent years with, um, as we've seen, um, under this, under this president, you've seen more, um, comfort with people expressing their racist views. And I've become aware of how much just below the surface this was growing up um, through conversations with my father and through connections with people who still live in that area. But at the time it seemed um, that there was a recognition that it was wrong. And so it was kept there below, below the surface for the most part.
1: Stephanie, how did you encounter these kinds of questions in college? Uh, Do you recall particular relationships at UND in which you began to think more self-critically about questions of racism?
2: So entering college, I was a kid who really thought everyone was the same, that racism was wrong, but really equated that with, you know, bigoted language or highly prejudicial acts. The first incident I remember where those beliefs were called into question for me was my freshman year. I lived in Warren Hall there at Indy and we had a girl on our floor named Shannon, a black girl. She lived at our end of the floor and she was wonderful to have um, have around. She was very extroverted, fun, wasn't afraid to say things, you know, call it like it is. there was a day in the spring when the sun was shining and some of the girls were going out to sunbathe behind the dorm and she said she would join us and I must have had a look on my face um, of surprise because she said what you think a black person shouldn't want their skin to be any darker and and then walked away probably you know muttering something about me being a silly white girl or something (laughs) but I realized with that comment that yeah I did I did assume that being lighter skinned would be preferred. And I wasn't sure why I thought that. And for me, that was the first of, of many incidents, which made me realize that I had some biases and stereotypes that about race that I was completely unaware of and needed to work to try to identify what those are. That was really the start for me of a very intentional and deliberate journey of exploration around issues of race.
1: What about graduate school? Did your professional training in physical therapy help you to prepare to engage a world populated by blacks and other peoples of color?
2: So I started PT school at UIndy after my junior year. And again, I was still in that mindset of wanting to explore and attempt to diversify my experiences and views. So I traveled for a lot of my clinical experiences. Of the five experiences, four were out of state. And I traveled from Chicago to rural Texas to Fresno, California, to inner city Philly. So really, really saw a, a decent part of the country. I was interested in getting broad experiences just from several angles, not just race, but diversity with, within those communities was certainly something that, um, that I valued and learned from. I have a distinct member f- memory from when I was in Philadelphia. I had to walk to my clinical site each day, about 30 minutes. I lived in a boarding house down near South Street, walked up around City Hall to the medical district um, at McGee Rehab Hospital. And so I would sometimes take slightly different routes to explore. I distinctly remember walking one day and suddenly realized I was one of the only few white people on the street and feeling very uneasy about that but thinking about why am i uneasy and looking around to see was there really anything going on that should make me uneasy or was it just the color of the people's skin around me and i I realized that was it um which again brought to the forefront for me something i needed to work on um, was my reaction and comfort level being around a majority people of color and so I I challenged myself for the rest of that rotation to intentionally walk ways um, to try to get more comfortable in those types of environments.
1: As you took on professional roles Stephanie how did you think about questions of race and racism as a professional as a physical therapist?
2: So when I was in PT school, I was part of a research group that collected our data down at Wishard Hospital. So I was introduced to that environment. I really saw at Wishard an opportunity to gain experience working with a diverse array of patients and colleagues from every, from every view of the, of the spectrum, race, um, types of injuries, trauma. Um, so I went to work there and worked there for three years. And I truly believe that was one of the best decisions I ever made. In my professional career, I learned so much and began to question and consider issues around race and racism during that time. I continued to become more aware of my own biases and stereotypes and seek to identify those and address those, um, and recognizing a lot of the just plain ignorance I had about these issues growing up. The situation that probably had the biggest impact on me during that time was I was there during the OJ Simpson trial. If you remember, this was one of the first televised trials, so there was a lot of attention being paid to it. And there was a great divide in the country on whether he was guilty or innocent. Um, Kind of reminds me of the divide we have now, and it it was unusual at that time. I had not experienced that before. From my perspective and from what I knew, it was so evident he was guilty, just so clear. Mm -hmm. But I also remember being baffled that people I worked with each day who I had great respect for saw it in a completely different way and I, I couldn't understand how that, that could be how could there be such different perspectives I was very blessed to have a friend there Donald who was an older black man and was willing to let me ask my stupid questions and um, you know he would shake his head and say oh Stephanie 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 and then would <laughs> would ask me, you know, I remember him asking how many times have you been pulled over and I said two and he told me how many times he'd been pulled over and asked of those two times was I ever asked to get out of the car and put my hands on the roof of the car. I was like no, that would have been completely out of my realm of imagination and he told me how often that had happened to him. We talked about the fact that our social gatherings as employees in the department were held at like the assistant director's house who lived in the city and not at the supervisor's house. And he said, that's because several of the members of the department aren't comfortable driving out into that suburb. And again, I was blissfully unaware of that reality and perspective, but it opened my eyes to the very different reality that many of our people of color were facing within the community. I think it's a very sad thing for me and um, frustrating thing for me, but I would say it really hasn't. The the congregations that I've been a part of, uh, race has usually not been a topic of conversation. They've been largely silent. And if not silent, then inactive. There's still that sense of otherness, if you will. And this is one of my greatest frustrations with the church at this time. and Something I've really struggled with, especially these last few years.
1: Stephanie, are there particular encounters you've had with artistic works that have made an impact on you?
2: Yes, in, in 2011, the IRT um, commissioned and presented a play called The Gospel of James, which was based largely on the work of James Madison, who you referred to early, um, early in this podcast, that play tells the story of the lynching in Marion. Um, the facts of the situation are a, a young white man was, was killed. Um, three black men were arrested. Um, a, a white woman who was with the white man claimed to have been sexually assaulted. And the community broke into the jail that evening and drugged the three men out to the town square, um, lynched two of them. The third, for some reason, was um, drugged back to the jail, um, James Cameron, who later um, wrote books and told told his story and was later pardoned by the state of Indiana. This this play, I, I attended with my sister, I'd become aware they were going to do it and we, um, we made plans to go see this together. And it, it was told, um, as though a conversation between James Madison and the woman Mary who um, claimed to have been raped and both told their reality of, of what they remembered from the situation. So it it wasn't a clear answer to what had happened. In fact, it it, it presented more questions. After the play, there was an open discussion with the actors and my sister and I stayed. And at one point I shared that we had grown up in that community. and. The people there you know, kept asking questions. Well, was it something you talked about? And was it, you know, how did the community deal with it? And it realized, I realized how strange it was that, again, I never heard it talked about within the community. Of my knowledge, I have of the situation has come from outside sources. I spent a lot of time after that um, reading. I read the, James, the book by James Madison and other works and even went with my husband, John, Back up to Marion um, and retrace the steps of some of the locations that are mentioned in the book, locations where I had frequented as a child, not knowing um, but going to see the, the the jailhouse and the courthouse where the lynching would have taken place, and and trying to imagine that as a part of my as a part of my community.
1: Stephanie, I'm grateful to you for calling, attention, calling my attention to The Gospel According to James, which I read earlier this fall with great appreciation and fascination. One of the things that I find particularly haunting about Charles Smith's Jr.'s play is the way that the play raises questions about memory, particularly as it pertains to um, the roles that the characters played in the killing of the white boy and the lynching of the two African-American men that is the crux of the drama. So I want to read um, an exchange from the end of Act 1 of the Gospel According to James. The character James speaks first. You sure you're actually remembering and you didn't just imagine it all? Marie responds, Depends on what day it is. Some days the memories are strong, so strong I can smell the honeysuckle that was in the air that night. Other days I believe I must have imagined it all. But when that happens, I touch one hand to my heart, and I know I didn't imagine it all. End quote. Stephanie, I wonder, what do you make of that sequence in the play? <laughs> How, if at all, does it fit with what you and your family have experienced? Are there points at which you have experienced an unstable relationship between imagination and memories of race and racism in the world in which you have grown up and lived?
2: Isn't memory and perspective just fascinating? Um, I think everyone wants to remember their childhood fondly, their parents and grandparents fondly, and it's been painful at times wrestling with what I remember about certain individuals from my childhood or knowing the history of many of the families within my community. The, the picture you referred to of the lynching where people look like they're on a picnic. I, I have stared at that picture multiple times looking for um, familiar faces, hoping I don't see them, but knowing knowing that those individuals are, are people who's at least, whose children, at least, were part of my life growing up. More specific to my grandfather, who I mentioned earlier, he would have been a teenager at the time of the lynching, lived in a small town outside of Marion. He had passed away before I knew about the lynching, but in talking to my dad and my grandmother, my grandmother believes he was told not to go into Marion. That night so it was clearly known in the surrounding community that something was amiss but my grandmother thinks he went either that night or or the next day um, and that he never wanted to talk about it so I don't know how he reacted what he felt about it what he thought about it and it's it's been interesting what my sister and I have done with that when we went to see the play we both realized that we had created a narrative in our head of our grandfather trying to stop it um they make reference in the play of a voice supposedly said don't hang this man and that's why the third man was was taken back so we had created some kind of narrative around our grandfather but I don't that was not, that's not true um and even recently just as I was preparing for this podcast and talking to her our memories of what our memories and then what we have imagined happened at that situation during that situation have been been very different. Um, I think it's fascinating how, how your life experiences can influence how you choose to remember things and how you choose to create the narratives around your history.
1: Stephanie, you and I are both parents as it happens, your children are about 15 years younger than mine, but I know from our conversations over the years that you and John have been fairly deliberate about making decisions that have prompted Piper and Shea and Brody to think about questions of race, justice, and diversity. Can you say something about what that has meant to you to raise children, to engage the kinds of questions of social justice that you have had to learn to engage?
2: I think as parents, we all probably try to raise our kids to correct some of the things that we, we thought were, were wrong about our childhood. I was certainly negatively impacted by my plain lack of exposure to race, Do people of different races, Do people um, who were different from me. And so we've been very intentional about trying to raise our kids where they have that exposure. We live in Indianapolis, but I, it's pretty easy, I think, to live in Indianapolis and still live in a fairly segregated community, have your kids go to a segregated school. So we've been very intentional about where we chose to live, where the kids went to school, what camps and activities they were engaged in, and also very open about talking with them about issues of race, social justice, about, I've talked to them about my history, talking with them and helping them to process um, external events that are happening in the media. And I would say it's nice as a parent when you feel like there's something you've wanted your kids to grow up learning and knowing from you, and you actually achieve that. That doesn't happen all the time, as you probably know, Michael. (laughs) Um, But this is an area I'm proud to say, I I really feel we've been successful. Um, I'm so proud of how of my kids and how comfortable they are engaging in conversations around social justice. Shay, my middle daughter, is majoring in peace and justice studies at at Villanova. Um, And so it's very comforting to see how far um, that comfort level has come in one generation.
1: Stephanie, in the moments that remain, can you say something about what you hope will come out of the university's upcoming celebration of Juneteenth?
2: So, in the play and in the book by James Madison um, that we talked about earlier, it's consistently mentioned that this incident is not something that the community where it occurred has ever really talked about and processed. There's a sense of, let's just put this behind us. behind us. And I think in many ways, that's the Hoosier way. Um, we have the Hoosier niceness, and we don't necessarily always feel comfortable addressing um, the hard conversations behind, uh, behind that. And I see that as part of UND's culture as well. I've, I've never experienced really tough, hard conversations at UND. I see my background as a second generation college kid from a small rural community as very similar to that of many of the students who come to UND and feel very strongly that they need those conversations to occur. So I hope what comes is a recognition that we as an institution have to be very intentional and deliberate in our anti-racism journey. It's something that needs to be talked about, that needs to be processed. So while I'm excited about the celebration of Juneteenth, I truly hope this celebration is just one piece of a longer conversation.
1: Thanks, Stephanie, for taking the time to join me for today's conversation about racism in Indiana history. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast, Stephanie and I hope that you will uh, all join us for the June 18th, 2021 event at the University of Indianapolis. That is the date of the first annual celebration of Juneteenth here at UND. Stay tuned for announcements from the planning group led by our colleagues, Amber Smith and the Reverend Arianne Williams, and have a good day.